Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Definitely broadcasting what you're doing as you're doing it. Talk about what your little one is doing as they're doing it. But you also want to keep it relatively simple because if you're talking um, in very long, complex sentences and you're talking really quickly, a lot of it will go over their heads. So you do want to, for sure, talk about what you're doing, but definitely slow down, keep it simple because they are more likely to pick it up if you talk in that manner. and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctor in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have Brooke and Bridget from the Speech Sisters. Both Brooke and Bridget are speech and language pathologists and have more than 20 years of combined experience diagnosing and treating hundreds of children with a variety of communication disorders and delays. Both moms and therapists, they have the personal and professional experience and expertise and have created online courses to teach parents simple speech secrets so they can help their child communicate. Brooke and Bridget, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to be here. Yes, me too. As I was just sharing with you offline, um, I grew up with a speech pathologist in my home. My mom's a language, a speech and language pathologist. And so I've always just have a very soft spot for, um, for what you do and um, really honor the work that you do with parents and children. Um, obviously, in, in, my, in my field of work, I work with a lot of kids too. And um, there's just something so rewarding about that. So I just want to share that really quick and, and just say thanks for being here. And, and all the work that you do to help the families and the children that you help. Thank you. It's, a, it's an amazing profession. So we are is. very blessed to be in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm hoping that everyone that is listening today, you know, can get some of their questions answered. I know I get questions a lot. I work with, work with a lot of SLPs and also OTs and, um, you know, in the work that I do. And, you know, we usually collaborate together with our treatment goals and treatment plans and things like that. And I just know so many questions come up. And a lot of times I'll say, hey, you need to ask, you know, so-and-so down the hall, you know, she's, this is her, that's her specialty, you know, when it comes to speech and language. Um, but I know I've, I've worked exclusively with children on the autism spectrum for the last um, three years plus. And most of my clients are either nonverbal or have some sort of speech and language um, goal on their treatment plan um, to help them communicate with their parents. So we're going to get into that a little bit later. But um, I want to start off by just asking you, what do you see as the most common reason children see a speech and language pathologist? Oh, boy, there are many different reasons. So um, really, depending on the age of the child, for our little ones, like babies and toddlers, we see them mostly because they are not meeting their communication milestones. So they may not have um, or be using as many words as they should at their age. Um, 
And then as children get a little bit older, we tend to see many children come in and need speech and language therapy for articulation errors um, or disorders. So their actual speech sound production is impaired. Um, But then you have other things like pragmatic language, um, which is social language. And many children on the autism spectrum need therapy for social language. So there really is a kind of wide umbrella as to why we service children. Sure, absolutely. Well, thanks for clarifying some of that. I know we could probably go in a whole huge discussion on what each one of those mean and, you know, how you help, um, you know, those those particular things when it comes to, to children in therapy. Um, but I want to also ask you, because I know this happened a lot, where um, a lot of people were asking, okay, who should I go see? And I know in my field, you know, there are licensed marriage and family therapists, and then there's, you know, interns, and then there's people that are still in their practicum. And it, you know, really makes a difference, um, you know, of how much education they have, how much experience they have. And I just want whoever's listening out there, um, when they're looking to find someone to, you know, to give their child some speech therapy, I want, I was hoping you would give us a little information on the difference between an SLP and a SLPA. Just so people know out there, you know, if, if they choose one or the other and what that means and uh, and what that means about with their title and what that means about the type of therapy that their child is getting. Sure. So a speech language pathologist is accredited typically in the United States through the American Speech and Hearing Association. They receive what is called a certificate of clinical competence and have a master's degree education level. And then a SLIPA really stands for a speech language pathologist assistant. And they actually just don't have as high of schooling. Um, It doesn't require a master's degree, but they do go to, you know, specific speech and language classes to get their education. But like I said, it's not that master's level. So it's more of a, you know, assistant or helper within our field. So if, you know, someone's looking for a someone to help their child, you know, oftentimes we would recommend looking for a speech and language pathologist, but there are many amazing slippers out there. But typically you're going to have a speech and language pathologist overseeing the case no matter what. That's what I was thinking, because even in the MFT world, you know, the interns always work under a licensed person's number, uh, you know, licensure. You know, so um, so even though they're they're you know giving therapy on their own, like let's say in that room, you know, someone's still signing off on their hours, or you know, and and they're still like you said, maybe not as much experience or education. But it's good to know that there are some amazing slippers out there <laughs> because yeah. um, you know you just and I think that goes for everybody in every profession. You know, there's there's going to be um, you know, especially when it comes to working with children. I feel like um, you know there's some people that are just really have a passion for it and really meant to work with that age group. And then some people just can't imagine doing it, you know, and I'm one of those people that have a passion for it and love working with with children, especially babies, toddlers at real young age, um, preschoolers and young elementary is kind of my sweet spot, um, which is where you see, you know, like I said, a lot of speech and language delays at times. Um, so we're going to go into that in just a minute. Um, but I want to ask you now, how does a parent know if their child needs to see um, a speech and language therapist? How how do how would what are some signs or that they would maybe think, oh, maybe I should go see someone and just get make my child assessed? 
Sure. So again, kind of depending on the child's age. So for our little ones, um, really at all, I mean, actually at any age, it comes down to whether or not a child is meeting communication milestones. And that is why we do what we do and educate parents on what these milestones are and, you know, the ages that they should be met. But for example, if we have a, let's say a two-year-old who is not saying many words, um, the milestone for expressive language the word count at two years old <clears throat> is at least 50 words. So if you have a two-year-old that's, say, only saying 10 words, you know, that would definitely be uh, more alarming to the point that we would want a child to be evaluated. Um, and then as children continue to grow, you might have a preschooler or a kindergartner, early um, elementary age child who is more difficult to understand. So that means, you know, their speech uh, production, their speech sound patterns might be irregular or they may have some errors in there. And for that, if a child's hard to understand at that age, you definitely want to get in and um, get an evaluation. Exactly. And and I, I love that. And I feel like, you know, again, I'll say in my line of work, there's so much, there's a a stigma to mental health, right? Um, there's just been a stigma to getting your child an evaluation to get them assessed to see what help they might need. And if they need, if they're at that age, let's say elementary age, where they might need a 504 plan or they might need an IEP and have, you know, speech within that if, they, if they're if they getting speech, um, not privately, but obviously the school system. Um, but I think sometimes parents have um, worries about that, of thinking that, you know, their child's going to be taken out of class and maybe other kids, um, you know, might notice that and, you know, know that they're just a little bit different. Or again, if they're not, you know, speaking the way the other kids are speaking, do you work with a lot of parents and kind of easing their, their, their mind when it comes to to their child getting assessed. I feel like a lot of times in my end, they feel like they don't want to because they feel like it might correct itself on its own, possibly. Um, or they're just scared that, you know, their child's going to, you know, have this, let's say, diagnosis or something that's going to be on their records forever. And, um, you know, I, I just know parents get worried about that. But do you deal with that in, in your line of work? Yeah, we do. Definitely. I've, at this point in our career, we work with a lot of early intervention cases. So parents who have children under the age of three. So oftentimes those parents are a little bit more eager to get started, get their little ones talking. At that point, you know, IEPs for school are not being put into place. And um, it's more just getting early intervention started right. on track to meet these milestones. So we see a little less resistance or worry when it comes to that population and age group. However, we've worked in the schools for many years and worked with many families who have that apprehension and don't want to go down that route just because they are scared that it will follow their child. But we always just let parents know that intervention is so key if a child does need it. And it can really set a child up for later success. And by not giving a child that support earlier on, you know, can have an impact later down the road academically. So always just guiding them in a gentle and loving way and kind of giving them the research and background to show that typically moving in that direction is the right decision. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I love that. I wanted to ask what your advice was, you know, to the parents out there that have that apprehension. So thanks for, for answering that question for me um, before I even asked it. Um, now let's talk a little bit about developmental milestones. I know you talk a lot about that on your Instagram and on your website. And I think a lot of times, and I know you have some charts, I think you have some free free charts that people, parents can print out as well, um, which you can share about that too. But would you share a little bit about developmental milestones and possibly, you know, when does a child start speaking, you know, or when is it a problem if they aren't speaking? Um, kind of what, what since you work in that zero to three range a lot now, um, what is that, what does that milestone look like? Sure. So again, um, <clears throat> for the zero to three population, we're looking mostly at receptive and expressive language milestones. So receptive being that understanding piece and then expressive being the verbal output. Um, you know, a baby, let's say zero to 12 months, um, we want to know, we want to see that they're starting to really understand language, usually around six, anywhere from six to 10 months. <clears throat> If you say, you know, where's the ball? Like, will they look in that direction? Or where's daddy? Will they look in his direction? Um, we need our little ones to be receptively strong in order to develop their expressive language. So they can't start talking and using words until they can understand those words. So that's a really big one. Um, and then in terms of the expressive language piece, Children usually start talking, they say their first words around 12 months. So we like to see a couple words, anywhere from two to three words. Usually it's mama, dada, um, simple words like that around 12 months. Okay. Yeah. And that's good. And, and, and I also, and, and I think you might obviously agree with this too, that I think a lot of times, you know, we have these milestones, which are great because it definitely, you know, there is, you know, let's say a normal range, but it is a range. And I always like to tell parents, and I'm sure you do the same, that just because, it, you know, it might be 13 months or you know, when it comes to crawling, walking, sitting, you know, all those things, um, you know, there there is a range. And I think some parents, um, you know, look at that and think that, okay, if it's not hit by this particular date, then that must mean something is wrong. Um, would you agree with that? Or what do you tell parents when it comes to that that range where, um, you know, it might be 12 months and three days, you know, but at that 12 month mark, if that child's not saying those three words, you know, sometimes, especially if it's their first child, um, they tend to worry. But what do you what do you share with parents about that range? Yeah, there's definitely a range for sure, um, especially between that milestone, which approximately 90% of children within that age group are able to do and more of an average, but like 50% can do. So I think we we actually have a blog on our website that parents can take a look at. It's called How Many Words Should My Child Have By When? And that's where we have that really good bell curve chart showing this, what we call an expected range between the number of words a child should say um, milestone-wise and also between that and the average. And just because it is such a huge range, like at 18 months, the milestone is 10 words, but more of the average is about 50. So that's a huge right. range. It only gets bigger and bigger as a child ages. So around 24 months, it is a milestone of 50 words and an average of like two to 300. So wow. the gap just gets bigger and bigger. And we just like to ease parents' minds and let them know, you know, this is a range. Every child is different. Every child is on their own unique journey and not to be overly concerned if they are within that range. It's just kind of being familiar with 
these um, guidelines and knowing if your child, you know, isn't meeting that milestone, which is the number in the lower part of the range, that we do want to be proactive in either supporting them at home or reaching out for help. And then we also have a milestone checklist that is free, um, a free resource from zero to 36 months old. So parents can check that out too, because it is more than just the number of words that a child says. There's so many other things that come into play within the realm of expressive and receptive language. So not only focusing on the number of words, but seeing if your child can do so many other communication skills and if they're on track for those as well. Exactly. And I love that you have those free resources. I saw them the other day and, um, you know, I love it because if parents ask me about something, then I can refer them to you, (laughs) which is um, fantastic because I think, you know, we just need so many tools in our toolbox, right? Um, Yeah. So let me ask you this, because I know you mentioned it uh, in some way, shape or form a little bit earlier um, about um, expressive language and receptive language and whatnot. And I know I worked with a lot of children who um, wouldn't respond to their name. You'd call their name and they wouldn't respond, right? Um, or, you know, they they wouldn't be able to ask for something. They either were nonverbal or just were, you know, young enough where they just didn't have the language. And therefore, I would see parents um, talk for their children, um, answer questions for them. You know, um, I know you had, a, I think it was a reel or a video on your, on your Instagram um, a little while back where you were talking about giving an empty water bottle to a child to see how they would react, right? Do you remember that? Um, and so anyway, I just, I just wanted to ask kind of what your thoughts are on that, because I know when I've worked with, with children um, that are trying to learn language and we want them to learn language, I, the first thing I usually tell a parent is don't talk for them, you know, give them opportunities to, to, to say the words or even the sound of the word. Um, and I know, I think you've called it, you know, stealing communication and some parents can do that. So what is your advice on that? Cause I'm hoping I'm giving the right advice, but, you know, telling parents to kind of just take take a step back and, and wait and allow your child to even make the sound if they can't say the full words, at least make the sound to communicate even by pointing or whatever it is, um, for something they want, even if it's not verbal, um, to maybe start with the nonverbal and then go to verbal, but you're the expert. So will you, um, shed some light on that? Sure. Yeah. So exactly. I mean, we do as parents, we often steal communication opportunities from our little ones, not on purpose, but just because we are conditioned to react to their every need, right? So from the time they're born, we are, when they cry, we feed them or change them. And so as they get older and they develop, we need to start to let them be a little bit more independent. And one way to do that is by not talking for them all the time. Of course, you want to be a good model and you want to teach them the words. You have to teach them the words and model them and say them for them at first. But when they, when you know that they're capable of saying them on their own or attempting to say them on their own, then you want to give them that, the freedom to do that or set up the situation to allow them to have to communicate with you. Um, It's a little bit different for our nonverbal children. Like if we're talking about a child, you know, on the autism spectrum, really with with kiddos like that, we want to make sure that they're understanding language because if they're not, if they're not understanding or they're not able to you know, if they really are nonverbal, then we, 
you may still have to give them those words. So it really does depend on the child and where they are developmentally. But if they are understanding and they are starting to communicate, then absolutely like give them an empty water cup because they will let you know that something is not right. And even if it is a grunt or a you know, gesture. It doesn't have to be a word, um, but you never know. Sometimes they will come out with a word. Yeah, exactly. It's all about paying attention to how your child is sending you a message. Um, and Brooke was saying, like, set up those communication temptations, like giving that empty water bottle, right? Or put them or give them a yogurt without a spoon, things like that, where they're going to look at you and go, uh, mom, you forgot something or dad, you forgot something. And they're going to need to send you a message at that moment. So even if a child's nonverbal, like Brooke said, it might be a nonverbal message. And then it's our responsibility at that point, if they're pointing, to go, uh oh, spoon, you need a spoon. You're telling me you need a spoon. And like take that as if your child is talking to you and then say it as they would if they could. And that's how you really build their language. Yes, I love that. And I think that's just so important to remember. And that was my point of what I try to do on my end when I work with children is to just to um, share with parents that they need to give their child that opportunity, right? To even to to communicate. But if they're stealing it away from them too early, um, then they won't even have the opportunity to even try. Or they may kind of give up, if you will, because they know right. their parent's going to do it for them. Um, exactly. So I think just opening up, you know, for the lines of communication, but opening up, you know, to even provide your child as many opportunities to speak as possible, especially even if there is no delay. I, I mean, I was like this with my kids and you can tell me if I did it right, but, or if this is what you would recommend, but um, I remember my husband coming home one time and and kind of laughing and saying, why are you talking so much? Because I think my our, our daughter was only, I don't know, less than a year old, right? And I would just be talking all the time about our day. And I would tell her, okay, now I'm going to heat up your, your, you know, your milk, or I'm going to, you know, heat up your food. And I'm going to cut this avocado and little pe like, I literally would talk through the whole day to her and where I was talking a lot. Um, but I feel like it helped her language development. I felt like just by sharing with her and being so verbal that she was still picking up on it, even though she couldn't speak back to me. Do you recommend that to your clients to kind of talk about their day and, you know, all the things that are happening in their day to kind of build some of that language? Absolutely. Yes. We oh, good. I did it right. <laughs> or I did it well, I should say. Not right, but I did it well. <laughs> Talk, talk, talk. And, you know, there's there's different kinds of talking and some they're not all created equal. Some are better than others. Definitely broadcasting what you're doing as you're doing it. Talk about what your little one is doing as they're doing it. But you also want to keep it relatively simple because if you're talking um, in very long, complex sentences and you're talking really quickly, a lot of it will go over their heads. So you do want to for sure, talk about what you're doing, but definitely slow down, keep it simple because they are more likely to pick it up if you talk in that manner. That is very true. Yes. Thank you. I'm glad you brought that up um, because like you said, it's not all created equal. So I love the differentiation there. Um, what are some What are some other advice that you have for parents of what they can do at home to um, help you know speech and language skills? And I know one question I wanted to kind of weave into that is, um, reading. Um, if a if a parent reads to their child um, before they can read themselves, um, does that also is that something um, uh, something that parents can implement in their home um, at a very young age, even infancy, um, to read them books, obviously slowly and you know with articulation, um, to help build those speech and language skills? Um, and then also, what else do you suggest? 
Yeah, so reading to your child is huge, um, very, very important, and even important to start this early on, um, as early as possible. And, you know, some lots of parents will say, oh, my child is not interested, you know, they won't sit and look at the book or listen, and, but, and that's okay, they don't have to be right away. Eventually, they will become more interested, but really just bombarding them with the language in the book. And, you know, one thing that we say is that you don't need to read all the words in a book. You actually don't need to read any of the words in the book. And we recommend not doing it, especially when you're when you have a baby or a toddler, because that can get a little more boring or redundant, you kind of want to make the book come alive and and add life to it, add um, movement and gestures. And that really, really helps to build your child's language. Yeah, that does. It helps with babies and like Brooke was saying, like really young toddlers, like 12 months, but eventually they get ready and, and able to hear the actual book and, and they love it and they'll start sitting for it. But right early on, like, you know, prior to 12 months, if you have a book and your child's not attending, you don't have to read all the words. Um, Make it fun, make it enjoyable, make it interactive. And we always say one tip is to have your child face you when reading a book. So you can hold your baby in your lap facing you, put them on a little, you know, breastfeeding pillow, something like that facing you, or you can sit them up on the couch and you sit down on the floor facing each other. That way your child can see your face as you're reading, see your mouth as you're articulating words and sounds, and also you can see where your child is looking within the book and kind of gear what you're talking about, the questions you ask, the comments you make in the book based upon what your child is looking at and interested in. Yes, that is such a great point. I love that. And, um, you know, I, I've i always been, you know, reading to my kids since they were very, very little. And and I think not only it helps with their speech, speech and language, but then also when they begin to start reading, my kids are at the age where they're starting to read on their own now. I think it's really helped with that, too. There's just so many benefits, right? Um, but I, I did add that on some of my my parents' um, treatment plans, my, my kids' treatment plans, my clients. Um, and they, they would say that. So I'm glad you brought that up, too, because they would say, oh, well, they're running around the room. This is more toddler age you know, two, three, four years old, where they'd be running around the room. And I'd say, just keep reading, just keep reading, let them hear the words, let's the, let them kind of soak it in, if you will, you know, because um, their attention spans were, were really little or really small, um, which at that age, obviously, we know that's the case. Um, but I know, too, since you work with a real little one, sometimes what I would do, too, is um, set up one of those kind of nursing pillows on the floor um, and practice tummy time. <laughs> and then I would, I would do what you said and, you know, face, face my, my daughter and my son, but I would face them while they were doing tummy time. So it was kind of a two for one. It was actually great because we got both things done at the same time. So, <laughs> um, yeah, right. Um, but what other, what other tips, um, maybe just a few quick tips. I know you, you have some courses we're going to talk about a little later, which, um, you know, I think go, go into more depth, but if you have just one or two other quick tips besides reading at home, um, what are some things that maybe parents can do at home, um, you know, to, to help some of that speech and language preventatively at a young age? So like we were saying before, you want to start from the beginning. But if you didn't start from the beginning, you know, at three, four months old, helping to build your child's language, speaking to them with the intent of building their language, that's okay. It's never too late. Uh, we like to remind parents to talk to their child, but talk to them with with meaning, right? So being mindful about how you talk to them, keeping things short and sweet, like Brooke was saying before. 
uh, as you say words, you want to repeat them. We always say repeat a target word anywhere between three to five times within an interaction. If you're talking about a noun, something that's right there that you can get hands on, like if you're talking about a ball, grab the ball, hold the ball right near your face as you label the word and repeat the word ball, ball. So you're showing your child that, or if you're talking about an action, jump, jump, do the action as you're saying the actual word, because this really helps create uh, some meaning between the actual word that you're verbalizing and, you know, it, the meaning of it in your child's brain. So really gets those, those neuro pathways firing. And another thing is just always helping your child. We talk about helping them up the language ladder and that's how to get them going from those babbles to those first words to two word combinations and three words and conversation sentences conversation and so on and so forth and right when you label a word like ball you don't want to just like leave leave it there after you label that word like three to five times then put it into a short little phrase put it into a short little sentence throw the ball you know ball 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 yes throw the ball, you know, and, and that's how we help them up that language ladder. That's that's one of many ways to do it. But it's a, a good, nice, big tip. No, I love that. Yes. And I, you're bringing me back to, um, I haven't, um, I haven't worked with some of my, the kiddos I was working with pre-pandemic, you know, um, but you're bringing me back to, I'm just thinking about some of the times where we, to try and get them to have those, you know, two, three, four word combinations um, that was part of their treatment plan. You know, I would have them say, I want the ball or I want ball or, you know, just having that, that prompt ahead of time really help them. Um, and then just prompting them with the, I want, and then they would say the, 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 the item that they wanted, whether it was a ball or a snack or whatever it was. And that really seemed to help. So, um, you know, I, I, yeah, thank you. I love that. I'm, um, you bring me back to all of my, my time with my kids, which, you know, I, I wanted to ask a little off the cuff, but you know, how did the pandemic you feel affect, um, you know, speech and language therapy with children, since a lot of it is looking at the mouth, um, you know, looking at the way the mouth is moving, looking at the words, um, things like that. I, um, did that, do you think that, that, um, set any children back when it came to wearing masks over our face and things like that, or even having to do therapy online versus in person. Um, did you notice anything when it came to that over the last two years? Yes, I think that the pandemic definitely had an impact on our kiddos who were receiving or are receiving speech and language therapy uh, for multiple reasons. I mean, certainly if a child is getting therapy and the child is wearing a mask and the therapist is wearing a mask, if especially if it's articulation therapy, it makes it very challenging because part of how children learn language and you know, just learn in general, they learn auditorily, they learn visually. And we know from research that especially language learning is is a lot of visual input. So, um, you know, there's studies being done right now to, to look at the the real impact of language, uh, of, of speech and language therapy during the pandemic. But so it's all happening in real time. We don't have like the hard evidence, but, you know, just from what we've seen in our own practice and, um, just gathering information from our community online, definitely um, it has been impacted. And then then there's the virtual therapy when everything had to go virtual. 
articulation probably is a little bit easier virtually than, let's say, language therapy for a two-year-old. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's nearly it's nearly impossible. Um, I think a lot of what happened was more parent coaching from speech therapists when they were working with a child of that age, um, which is which is great. Yes. But yes, I mean, the challenges were there. Yeah, yeah, and it's hard to say what really caused it. You know, is it or what had an impact? You know, it could be masks. I'm sure a little bit of it is masks. I'm sure a little bit of it is us being, you know, home and not being able to go anywhere. And a little bit is not being able to socialize with peers. A little bit is not being able to take our kids to mommy and me type classes. Um, there's just so many things that it's hard to really put your finger on what the exact cause was. I think it's a combination of, of many things. Oh, sure. Of course. Of course. Well, we're almost done, but I have a couple more quick questions. Um, one, I know we were talking a little bit earlier about stealing communication and something else just came to mind. Um, when it comes to um, uh, withholding something from a child, um, before they say the word, I'll give you an example. So let's say a child wants um, a snack or wants a ball. Um, if the parent prompts the child and and, and I guess doesn't just give them the item right away and you give you let's say open up that opportunity for the child to actually say buh 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 for ball or whatever the case is. Um is that a good practice at home? I always love giving practical tips, but is that good practice for a parent to hold the ball in their hand and almost I'll say withdrawal giving it to them, but withdrawal giving it to them, giving giving the child the opportunity to say buh buh as the parents prompting him uh, prompting them, um, you know, with that. Is that good or is that you withhold the item and don't give it to them until they actually say a sound or a word? Is that, you know, does that make sense? <laughs> yes, totally makes sense. So yes, I think there's a wrong way and a right way to do this. So there are some kids that are going to really freak out when we withdraw or withhold from them, right? And then there's other kids who are just going to roll with it and they're going to be fine. So knowing your child, <laughs> number one. Yes. And then also, I think it's one thing if you're drawing attention, like let's say your child wants the ball and you're kind of like, I don't want to say like playing stupid, but like you're kind of like right. throwing the ball and like pretending that you don't know they want it, but you're drawing attention to there. That's kind of a setting up a communication temptation. And in that case, that's fine. Um, I like but if that. you're holding the ball and you're like pulling it back and you're like, say ball, say ball, and you keep pulling it backwards, right? Like I'm not going to give mm -hmm. this to you until you say ball. That's going to cause some, uh, some talking pressure and that's just not as good. Um, have a way to do it. But you can definitely, you know, put puzzle like I when I do therapy, like I it's just kind of my style. Like I like to be the keeper of the pieces. I with certain kids. I find that some kids I can let them like guide the way and just roll with it, but you know, I did therapy this morning with a little guy and if I give him the pieces to the puzzle, um, he will just run away and like the, it, it's over. So I right. take the pieces and they're in my possession and I, you know, hold it up and I go, "Okay, you want to put it in, but look, it's a dog, dog. And then he'll be like, dog. And I give it to him right away. So I, in that case, I'm like, he knows that I'm trying to get him to say it. And I am holding the pieces. So it just so depends on the child True. and how they react. And just also like not taunting them with it. 
Yes, that that. Thank you. Yes, thanks for clarifying that. I wasn't articulating it as well as <laughs> in my question as much as I wanted, but I'm I'm glad you knew what I was, you know, trying to say and was able to to answer in the way you did. So, um, I know we just touched upon it earlier. My last question um, has to do with autism. I know I said I worked uh, a, a lot with children on the autism spectrum, um, and I know you have some advice on on like I said your your socials and and I'm sure you have it on your your website and your blog and whatnot. Um, but what advice do you have for parents who may think their child's speech and language delay could be autism, um, what, what, would be, what would be their first step if they're thinking that could be the direction um, their child's go, you know, going in? Well, definitely having a support system and getting a child evaluated if you feel as though your child isn't meeting milestones, if you feel as though your child's showing signs of autism, looking, you know, reaching out to your pediatrician, that's always a great place to start. Reaching out for a speech evaluation, cognitive evaluation, developmental evaluation, all of it. Um, It's really important that our little ones get that early intervention because they really can make such strides. Um, But I think just encouraging parents that autistic children can really communicate and be very verbal and everything. Like there's so much that you can do to help your child. So please like just be proactive in helping them, but always meet them where they're at. I think that's a really good piece of information. And um, I think not, you know, if a child's nonverbal, like not putting too much talking pressure on them. And then another thing is letting them guide the way, like we were saying before, if a child has one interest, go with that interest. Use that interest to help build your child's language. Enter their world because that's where the connection is going to happen. And then I think, too, we always coach parents um, if, uh, you know, when working with their child, if they're playing and the child's like really focused on a toy or they're not that focused on the parent because a toy is there, get rid of the toy. And just try to interact directly with your child. This may be, we we call these toyless tricks. Um, Some people call them people games. And it could be something as easy as like chase and tickle or um, Mm. hiding under a blanket and popping out and doing like a blanket swing, putting a hat on your head and like sneezing it off. And then your child has to run and get it and like bring it back to you for you to do it again. Um, this creates what's called a dyadic relationship where your child does not have to shift their joint attention and they can just focus on you. So there's a lot of communication opportunities that can occur there. Whereas with a toy, that's more of what it's called a triadic uh, dynamic. And that's because there's a toy, there's a parent and there's a child, right? There's three things in that equation. So it makes the joint attention piece a little bit more difficult. So joint attention is the first thing to focus on, you know, um, and trying to improve that because once we improve that joint attention and once we improve the interaction, like doing something fun, like chase tickle or peekaboo blanket or something like that, it gets children wanting to communicate with you. And that's just going to go so much further than putting that talking pressure on. Yes, exactly. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, I know when my daughter was little, she had a problem with the S sound. And it was almost like a little bit of a lisp, you know, it sounded a little bit like a lisp because she was saying the the TH, it's hard to do that over a podcast, but (laughs) she was doing where her tongue would stick out of the TH sound, I guess, um, in lieu of the S. And I remember 
um, you know, my mom, who is an SLP, said, don't worry, um, you know, her, she'll grow out of it because her, um, there was something about, you know, the way her developmentally, physically um, was, she was unable to do that. And then she grew out of it and she was fine. She actually didn't have any type of interventions or things like that. Um, my just last quick tip on um, any advice for parents if their child does have a lisp or even a stutter, um, if that's something that they can grow out of, um, either with or without therapy? Uh, okay, well, t- it's important to be aware of when children develop certain speech sounds. So S is a later developing sound. So oftentimes children will substitute S for another sound. If it's substituted for the TH sound, then we can consider that a lisp. Um, a lisp can be caused by many things. It's actually a tongue thrust. And oftentimes we see this more often in children who suck habitually on something, a thumb, a pacifier, a bottle. Um, Can it self-correct? Absolutely. Um, Sometimes it doesn't and it does need more intervention from a speech therapist. So it's just really important to pay attention to the timing of that. So typically S emerges between like four and five years old. Um, But every speech sound is different. So kind of just, you know, familiarizing yourself with when children should acquire certain speech sounds. And then as for a stutter, which is a completely different thing. Um, yes, there are there is developmental stuttering. That is a very typical uh, thing that we see typically in children or between, let's say, age two and four. Um, at home, you want to make sure that you're modeling your speech in an unhurried way, not asking your child too many questions, giving them your undivided attention, even though that's so hard. I know. Um, and just not having too many people like talk at the same time. You don't want to tell them slow down or relax. Um, you don't want to like basically speak their sentences for them and you don't want to rush them um, or make them feel bad. So definitely different things that you can do about it. Uh, we have a story highlight button on it and a blog on our on our website. But if if it goes on past six months, definitely reach out to a speech pathologist. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you for those tips. Um, I know I saw a lot of it when kids were doing virtual learning. Um, Some kids were getting anxious and having, you know, more anxiety, being at home, you know, having to talk in front of the whole class at one time, having everyone listening. Because, you know, when you're in a classroom, you you might just be talking to the teacher or to the kids next to you. But on the virtual learning, your whole entire class is watching you the whole time. And it's um, pretty anxiety provoking. And I noticed there was a couple of of kids um, in my daughter's class at the time um, who developed to stutter during that time because of their anxiety. Well, at least that's what, you know, they were, those parents told me um, is where it stemmed from. And then after they went back to the classroom, you know, when they weren't virtual, it it, it definitely corrected itself. But, um, but I'm glad you have a highlight on that. You have a blog. Um, Thank you for all of your tips today. Um, If you wouldn't mind just um, quickly sharing what your website is, everyone knows where the, where to find you online on socials. Um, Cause I know you have some online courses too, that parents can sign up for. And again, some, some free, um, printables and things like that too. We do. Uh, We have two online courses. We have one for parents of babies, zero to 14 months. That's called Talk on Track. And then we have another course for parents of toddlers, 15 to 36 months, and that is called Time to Talk. You can find those on our website, which is speechsisters.com. And then we have tons of free resources and tips on Instagram. And you can find us there at Speech Sisters. Wonderful. Thank you. And I love that you're real sisters. I love that you're both in this profession. I think that's just so special, (laughs) right? Um, 
Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you again for being um, you know, on the podcast today and thank you for all of your advice. And I hope everyone reaches out to you um, that has any questions or just, you know, you're such a wealth of knowledge um, and have so much wisdom um, in this profession that I'm, I'm sure you've helped so many parents and will continue to do so. So thank you again for being on today. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.